Friends, can I be honest with you for a minute? That'll be all right. Can we keep it right here amongst us, you know, in this close-knit group of people? That's a weird story. Am I right? This is not an unfamiliar story to me. I've been in the church a real long time. And that, that's a weird story. I was sitting here in the front row, and at the beginning of the service, the choir pops up, and they start shouting, Jesus is Lord, in all different kinds of languages. And I thought, that's a weird story. And so when I found out that I was preaching on Pentecost Sunday, I thought, well, this is a, this is a story I'm familiar with, right? That's easy. Beginning of the church, uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. How can you mess that up? And then I started reading it again, trying to read it with fresh eyes. That's a weird story. And as I'm walking through the week, with that in the back of my mind, I made the mistake of engaging with the news. And you see school shootings and disunity and abuse and tragedy and loss. You hear stories of depression and hurt. And even within the body of Christ, infighting and confusion. And at one point during the week, I wanted to go outside and shake my fist and say, God, where are you? And I felt a nudge that said, go back to the weird story. As so I went back to Acts chapter 2, so often I can get caught up in the weirdness of the wind and the fire and the languages, and I can miss the fact that when the Spirit shows up among the people of God, we get to see how the people of God act. We get to see the fruit of the Spirit lived out in the people of God. And so I begin to read Acts chapter 2 again with that lens. I noticed a few important things that as you engage this story, people filled with the Spirit of God tell about the wonderful things of God. If you can get past the fact that all of these people begin to speak in languages that aren't their own, and, and you hear how the, the people who are gathered in Jerusalem respond, they come to the place where the believers are gathered, they hear them speaking in their own language, they're amazed and perplexed, and what did they say the people were talking about? The wonderful things that God has done. When the people of God are filled with the Spirit, it leads us to worship and praise and remembrance and telling what the wonderful things that God has done. That's the beauty of the rhythm of coming and worshiping together every week. Pay attention. 
When we gather, one of the first things that we'll do is we'll sing or we'll talk about the acts of God. God comes first. He has called us to worship. We remember his mighty acts and deeds and we respond in praise and worship. People filled with the Spirit of God remember that it has very little to do with us and a whole lot to do with God. And we recount that story over and over and over again. But the danger when the Spirit shows up, at least for me, I won't speak for you, but for me is when the Spirit often shows up, my cynicism or my skepticism also shows up. And you see people respond to the moving of the Spirit in two ways in this story, don't you? The people gather together, they they say, these Galileans, these uneducated Galileans speak a different language than I do, but somehow they're saying what they're saying I understand. And some of them were amazed and perplexed. They're trying to get to the bottom of it. That's one group. What does the other group say? Well, those people are just drunk. Now, come on. You are hearing a group of people who don't speak your language and you understand them. And you say, well, this, they're probably just drunk. There are times when I see the spirit move, I see God work, and my cynicism and my skepticism wants to explain it away. I want to find ways to put it in a box that I can control and that I can understand. God is calling us as people of the Spirit to look around and see where he is at work in the world. Surround yourself with people who begin to see the Spirit and don't just discount them. Well, they just see the Spirit all the time. That's because the Spirit is always present. And the people of God respond to the moving and the work of the Spirit with praise and worship. There are times, friends, when you're going to go through a dark night of the soul, when you are going to walk the journey and you're going to feel like God is absent. And it's in those times even more importantly, that you need those people around you who are filled with the Spirit and can remind you of the wonderful work of God. And for a while, you can let them help you through that time. And when you look back on those dark times, you begin to see where the Spirit was at work time and time again, and you just couldn't see. The people of God who are filled with the Spirit, respond to the revelation of God and tell of the wonderful things he has done. People who are filled with the Spirit are ambassadors of reconciliation. I almost missed this. We talk a lot about reconciliation these days, and it's, it's kind of, a lot of people kind of write it off as, well, it's the church's response to some sort of PC idea, right? It's that political correctness. Friends, reconciliation with God and with our brothers and sisters has been at the core of the church's mission from the very beginning. When the Spirit comes on his people, they begin to speak in, the, in languages of the people around the world. 
And that draws the people to them. God uses them to begin to unite brothers and sisters from every tribe and language underneath the headship of Christ. And we are called to be these people of reconciliation. People who in view of God's mercy reach out to everyone who is around us and be agents of reconciliation. Paul picks up on this idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This passage has kind of caught my imagination lately. I can't let it go. He says this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And we like to celebrate that section, right? We go there quite a bit. Oh, God's done a good work in me. I have a new life. This is exciting. And Paul goes on. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Pay attention. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. We are Christ's ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador leaves, goes out, leaves the places of comfort, leaves home, and goes to places that aren't home to be a representative of the kingdom he comes from. And for a long time, I would talk about being an ambassador for Christ, and I would talk about how hard it is to be an ambassador. And recently, I've been trying to get that language out of my vocabulary. Because the only thing that makes being an ambassador hard is that it's not my normal. Going into a culture that is not my own is not hard for that culture. It's hard for me because it's not my normal. So being an ambassador for Christ isn't hard, it's different. And we have to be willing, if we are going to be Christ's ambassadors, to put ourselves in, in situations that at first might be uncomfortable. But eventually what we begin to see is that we are surrounded by the beauty of the fullness of God when we are surrounded by people who are not like us. We are called to be Christ's ambassadors of reconciliation, calling us all to come back to God under one head, Jesus Christ. This is at the core of the mission of the church. Luke spends a lot of time with this idea. He reminds us that people from every nation are called to this reconciliation. And he goes on when Peter quotes Joel. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. There will be reconciliation between the genders. And there are times when I forget that this is still a problem. And then I'm reminded. (laughs) 
that there is still strife between the genders, and we are called to be people of reconciliation, allowing our sons and our daughters to prophesy, to speak out against injustice and what is wrong, and to listen and be changed. We are called to be people of reconciliation. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. We are called to be people of reconciliation between the generations. It is always fascinating to me how we can divide ourselves generationally and how much we lose when we do it. When I'm gathered together with the brothers and sisters who are farther along the journey than I am, I can, get, I can glean their wisdom and their understanding and I can hear the stories of God's faithfulness through the years. I can hear the history so that I don't make the same mistakes they made. And friends, if we gather together with those who are younger, we get a picture of the hope and, and the excitement of the future. The willingness to change and adapt and try new things and explore because we can conquer the world. And if we leave any of those people out, we lose. We're called to be people of reconciliation among the generations. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. We're called to be people of reconciliation across economic boundaries. Friends, systems that set up economic oppression are not the way of Jesus. And if we are not listening to our brothers and sisters who are in a different economic class than we are, we are losing out. We are not hearing the full prophecy of God. And we are called to be people of reconciliation. As the people of God, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we stand in the gap. The truth of reconciliation is that it is not something that we address and all of a sudden it is fixed. The truth of reconciliation is it is a journey that we take together. And it's back and forth, it's give and it's take, it's conversation, it's life together. And it's the people of God. We stand in the gap between those people who have been torn apart and we say we will stand here until we are reconciled under the headship of Christ. We're called to be people of reconciliation. And people of the Spirit are convicted of sin, brought to repentance, and sent out on mission. <laughs> I grew up in evangelical churches. We like to tell the story. We like converts. And we have uh, had, over the decades, a lot of tools 
to try to bring people to Jesus. And what that turned into a lot of times would be me going about knocking on doors trying to strong arm people into the kingdom. And I'm coming more and more to the realization that as I live as a person filled with the Spirit, telling the story of God, telling of God's mighty acts, being a person of reconciliation who stands in the gap, I don't have to convict people of sin. The Spirit will do that. And people will call on the name of the Lord and be saved. But it also struck me as I was studying this passage that oftentimes we think about that conviction of sin, the repentance and turning away from sin, and we think about it for those people out there. And I was reminded that there are often times that the Holy Spirit has to work in my life and convict me of my sin. I'm walking along the journey and all of a sudden something that I might not have even recognized, the Spirit will shine a light on and point out and say, that needs to change. Let me help you with it. Convicts me, a holy conviction that leads to holy repentance and leads me to a new and fresh mission. A number of years ago, I was serving as a youth pastor, so I had it all figured out, right? And I was with a group of teenagers, and we had gone to Washington, D.C., a bunch of teenagers from Indiana going to Washington, D.C., a little bit of a culture shock there. We were in D.C., uh, we're riding in this van um, with someone from a serving organization. He and I are sitting in the front seat. The students and a couple other volunteers from the organization are in the back of the van. They're handing out sack lunches. And in the front, he and I are talking. He's showing me different parts of the city, talking to me about uh, some of the issues in the, those parts of the city, how their organization is trying to help with that. And I'm listening. We're having great conversation. Part of the way through the trip, all of a sudden I realized that conversation just shut down. It was done. I would say something and he would half-heartedly engage back, but he was out. He had finished. And I had no idea why. And so over the years, I would occasionally, that, that trip would come to my mind again. And I'd replay the conversations. And I was like, why why did he check out? I have no idea what happened. And after a few years, yes, it took that long. I'm a little dense. After a few years, the Spirit shined a light on that conversation again. And as I played it in my head, I remembered the last thing I had said. And it struck me. Some of my ingrained racism that I thought was gone had shown itself. I hadn't even caught it. If you'd have asked me at the time, I would have told you, there's no way I'm a racist. I love this guy. He's my brother in Christ. But it, it came out in a, a subtle way, not so subtle for him. And I was convicted I had to repent. And I wish I could tell you I could have found that guy. 
to be a person of reconciliation. But I haven't. But I know this. The people filled with the Spirit are open to the holy conviction of sin. And when the Spirit shows you something that is not right, is not holy in your life, respond. Listen. Let the Spirit lead you to repentance and reconciliation. As I wrestled with this passage, what I wanted to do now was to give you the five easy steps to bring the Holy Spirit. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Guess what? I'm not going to do that because I can't. As I was trying to come up with those five easy steps, I all of a sudden remembered my grandpa. He loved to garden. Any gardeners in the room? Come on. Uh, they're just afraid. I won't look for any vegetables because there are no gardeners. My, my grandpa loved to garden, and his garden was lush and huge, and he grew the good stuff, right? Tomatoes, cucumbers, corn, watermelon, that stuff you could pick off the vine and just eat, and it was fresh and beautiful. And he spent a ton of time in that garden, tending it, caring for it, giving it love in some weird fashion. And as I look back on my childhood, I remember my grandfather in two places, preaching and in the garden. And oftentimes he would go straight from one to the other. That guy would go home, and you know, back in those days, preachers wore suits all the time, suit and tie, and some of you wish we still did that. And but he would go home, he wouldn't even change clothes, right? He put those coveralls on over his suit, and he started working in the garden. I'm like, how are you not dying of heat exhaustion? But he'd put that on and he'd go out in the garden and he'd work it. <laughs> and me and my brother and one of my uncles who's not much older than I am and all, all my first 10 cousins were all boys. And so we'd converge on my grandma and grandpa's house. And we'd play wiffle ball. And we had enough people, right? to have teams, and it didn't matter where my grandparents lived, the garden ended up being the outfield. We were always hitting toward the garden. Made my grandfather crazy. We'd hit toward the garden, and sometimes the rules would be, if you hit it and it went in the garden, automatic home run, you get to do the home run trot, take your time around the bases. And when that was the case, the fielders would take their time going in, like, you know, the rows in the garden. They'd take their time not to step on any plants, and they'd get the ball, and they'd come back out again. My grandfather's blood pressure would stay down. But there were other times when the garden was in play. Ooh, those were good days. And when you hit the ball, if it went to the garden, you knew it was far enough that you might make it home. So you were running hard around the bases. Well, let me tell you something about me and my cousins. We're real competitive. And so the people in the field didn't want you getting home. So they would charge 
full bore into the garden. There was no care for the rose at that point. The plants would just get trampled. The garden destroyed. And as I got older, I realized I didn't like gardening. And I'm ashamed to admit I didn't like gardening because I couldn't control it. I couldn't control it. I could tend it. I could care for it. But I can't make a plant grow. You put a seed in the ground and it dies and something miraculous happens and a plant with fruit begins to bloom. And those of you who are biologists in the room, I know you're going to take me aside and you're going to try to explain it to me and you're going to tell me, you know, they're just drunk. But there's a miracle that we can't manipulate or control. The plant comes up and there's beautiful fruit. The fruit's not perfect, is it? I like to imagine tomatoes being all the same size, perfectly round. But they're different sizes, different shapes, different colors. But they're glorious. And friends, I can't give you steps to bring the Holy Spirit. But we do tend and care for our spiritual lives to hopefully make the, let the ground be fertile, to give the right conditions so that we can hear the Spirit and the Spirit reveals Himself. We don't read Scripture and pray and gather together in Christian community to earn favor with God. We don't do it to manipulate the Holy Spirit. We do it to tend the soil. We do it so that we can be attentive and listen for when the Spirit moves. When the Spirit speaks, we can be aware. We can point and we can worship. We can be people of reconciliation. Convicted of sin and turned to repentance. 